We're moving from worship around the throne um, to the opening of the seven seals. So it's, it's really basically a continuation of this throne room scene of the worship of the Lamb and the worship of God. And, and that's the, the sovereignty and the majesty of God are still the dominant theme as we come in here um, and, and as we begin to see these seals opened and, and the judgments come out from them and, and so forth. It's the sovereignty of God and the majesty of God and the Lamb that, that dominate the scene. So the horsemen give us a real-life look at our, our world today. As we come in, we look at these first four seals. It's, it's like peeking into the 21st century and, and everything that is happening through here. And um, the cure for every issue that we face today, it really is it's in the throne room of God. It is worshiping at the feet of the Lamb. It is coming before Him and yielding ourselves to Him and, and following it. And, and from there, we see the sovereign God in all of His majesty, uh, redeeming and restoring creation through the Lamb who was slain. So as we come in in, in the first eight verses in, in uh, Revelation 6, 1 through 8, the first thing we see is that sin produces death and destruction. This is what we're going to see in these first four horsemen, is that sin produces death and destruction. Um, the depth of depravity that we reach when sin is left to run without repentance is, is what, what's coming out here. Um, it's, it's a dark path, and, and really it reveals the total depravity of man. It, it reveals where our hearts will lead us if we follow them rather than follow God, rather than reach out for Jesus. So what we see in, in these four horses is the lust for conquest, civil war, famine, and pestilence that leads to death. So this is a vivid picture of the ravages of sin and what sin does, and it, and it really should drive us to this path or onto a path where we have the greatest desire to put sin to death in our own lives. So in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 1, um, John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine." When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So, <clears throat> as, as we come in, in these four horses, this is... This is where sin leads. This is what, what happens when it's unchecked. And, and James put it this way, James 1, 14 and 15, we talks about sin and how it works in our lives. He said, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is finally grown, brings forth death. So James gives us, it's a progression. It starts at a little bit, and, and it eventually comes to the point that it consumes us and destroys us. So it's something that we see that's pretty, that we dabble with, and, and after we dabble with it for a while, instead of us holding it, it holds us, and then ultimately it strangles and chokes and kills us, and it takes all of the life out of a sin is the great separator from God, and it's the path of utter destruction. And there are parallels to these four horsemen as we come in. The parallels are in Leviticus 26, 18 to 28, Zechariah chapter 6, and Ezekiel 14, 12 through 23. We see similar things in there. But the Lamb, as we come in and we look at this, the Lamb is the one who is opening the seals. The Lamb is Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. So He is the one who opens each of the seven seals, and God is the one who authorizes the horsemen to do his work of judgment. God is the one that authorizes this stuff to happen because the four living creatures are right around God. Remember, nothing happens without God allowing it. So he allows the horsemen to do his work of judgment. So this, this may seem to be void of grace and mercy as we come in, just kind of looking at it as we come into all of this, kind of backing out and, and having a look you know, you look at it and go, wow, this is just, this is horrible. How could a loving God do something like this or even allow anything like this? But what, what the picture is, is really Jesus has simply allowed those who have rejected him to receive the fullness of sin. It's just pure and simple. It's like what James says. You know what? They, they wanted sin. They chased after sin. Sin came in. It produced sin in their lives, and ultimately it produced death. They got what they longed for at the opening of the first seal, the first living creature <clears throat> with a voice like thunder calls out the white horse. And, and so <clears throat> um, we come in and, and then we see this. So um, if, if we look at this horse, um, he is, is the horse of conquest. He is the horse of conquest. So... Um, that's what the result is from unbridled sin. So it's um, when, when people in power cannot quench their thirst for power. It is, it is the unbridled desire um, to conquer that, that man has. So at the opening of the first seal, this is, this is what happens. So this horseman, he comes out and he is on the white horse and he is the horse of conquest. Um, if you would like a picture of that today of, of what conquest looks like, flip on the news. You have one country invading another to conquer them, to take them over. That's, that, that would be the picture of, of Ukraine. If you looked in here, here's one that has unprompted and, and invaded another. So as you come in there, that's, that's what's going on. So this is the first Horse. He is the horse of conquest. It is the horse that cannot get enough power. It is the, the horse that wants to take everything in. So then the second horseman is red. Um, it's a red horse. And, and as we look at this horse, um, <clears throat> this white horse that... that um, well, if we back up, first of all, the white horse is, is also, if you look in into the, the, um, 
the contemporary's picture of this that, that would have been in Rome. This was the um, only horse that the Romans would have been afraid of. Horse conquest, because a horse conquest has a bow and he has a crown. And that would be the Parthians. The Parthians are the only people who ever defeated the Romans. They did it twice. They did it in 55 BC, 62 AD. They were the ones who could come in. And, and the reason was, was they had figured out how to ride horses and shoot bows at the same time, which would be really cool. Um, you know, I would like to be able to shoot my bow on the back of a horse and, and hit my target. That would be way cool. But, but anyway, they were, they were able to do this. So this is the picture that they would see in the crown meant they, they weren't ruled by the Romans. They were independent. And that's what this horse is. This horse is the horse. That, it doesn't matter how big you are. He can come in and take you out. He can conquer you. He doesn't answer to you. You don't control him. He controls the situation. So, so there it is. So the second one is, um, is red. And in this one, he has the sword. So the sword in, in that day would be, um, would be the uh, power of the state to kill. The power of the state to take life. Capital punishment. To punish by death. And this was granted to certain officials in, in uh, Rome and in Roman provinces. They had the ability to do that. So he's going to move the needle from conquest to civil war. So you're going to go from a conquering horse to a horse that's, that's moving, and, and there's going to be civil war take place all over the, the area. And, and this is something that Rome was familiar with as well. If you come back, um, this, this is not something that was unheard of after Caesar Augustus. They had civil war. Um, they'd had civil war several times. So the people in that day and time, they understood and they feared what would happen with that. They understood the significance of it. If you go back before the Romans, you had Alexander the Great. Alexander dies. He has four generals. The four generals take four different areas. And guess what the four generals do? They fight all the way until the Romans come and consume them. So they fight against each other. Civil war. This is what's taking place because conquest um, is, is what comes after unbridled sin. And, and then it leads to this civil war. It would be a time of bloody exposure and it would expose the Pax Romana, which was the thing of the day. If you come into Rome, they had the thing called the Peace of Rome. The Peace of Rome meant that you could travel freely throughout the empire, that, that people didn't rise up against Rome. But, but the thing about the Peace of Rome is it wasn't like the peace that passes all understanding that we read about in the New Testament. This was the peace that if you, if you uh, rattle it in any shape, form, or fashion, you're done. I mean, they held it with the stone, they, with the sword. They kept it with the cross. They kept it in a lot of different ways. This is how they maintained the peace. It was through power and, and destruction. So this is a whole different thing. And, and um, this is a time of bloody exposure that will expose the peace of Rome for being no peace at all. And then the next one is the third horseman is on a black horse. So as we come in and, and we see this black horse, as, as we read about, while well, the Goethe's rider has this pair of scales in his hand. And, and if you come in and scales, scales are, are they're symbolic of scarcity. It's, it's scarcity because he cries out, he says, a quart, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Uh, you know, really, when we think about that, I don't, you know, a quart of wheat, I mean, I'm, I know what a quart jar is, but, but trying to figure out what a quart of wheat is and, and what you can do with that, that's, uh, 
you know, that, that's really not in, in our realm today. But um, I guess you bake bread with it. But anyway, um, after you did some stuff. But, but anyway, what the real thing is, a denarius was a day's wages. It took a day's wages by food to feed one man. Roman soldiers' ration for the day was a quart of wheat. Three quarts of barley would feed a family. Barley was an inferior food source. to It was a denarius. Now, <clears throat> to take it a little bit further into perspective, normally you could buy 12 quarts of wheat with a denarius. But because you have civil war that has taken place, you've been conquered, you've broken out into civil war, and, and there's this conquest going on, everything happening, Prices have gone through the sky and everybody is living in a time of scarcity. It's a time where you don't eat more than you absolutely need to survive. In other words, um, <clears throat> you only get a certain portion. Now, I grew up with two brothers. So there was a rule at the table. You don't eat your brother's food. And unless nobody was looking, we didn't do it. But if he was too slow, the fork came out. But none of us were really starving. It was just that we could eat as long as there was food on the table. That's not what this is. This is, don't eat too much today because if you do, we'll die. Don't eat it all now. Stretch it out. We'll just give our bodies enough, maybe make it until it's over with. So this is what this horse is, that, that he comes in, and if you have kids to feed, it's going to get ugly really, really quick. If you're trying to feed a family, this is going to be a really dark time. So it means scarcity. So the conquering armies, they would come in as, as they did in, in ancient times, and they would devour all of the food. They would devour all of the resources, and then they would denude the fields. There would be nothing left to grow. So you were left in this time of scarcity. This was what ancient warfare would look like. And then comes the fourth horse. And the fourth, fourth horse is the pale horse, maybe the mottled horse you might see if you look him described in other places. But what it really is, that pale, it's a sickly yellowish green. You know, if... if, if we ask everybody for your favorite color. You might say yellow, you might say green, but you're not going to say sickly pale green. And what that color is, it's the color of disease and death. And, and if you think for a minute, it's, it's something that we're familiar with. Um, it, it's something when you see it for the first time, you, you know that something is not right. You know that this color is off and, and something is happening. It's unmistakable. It's not anything that you want to see. I remember the first time I experienced this up, you know, very, very personally, um, about 28, 29 years ago, and, and I had a lady call me in the middle of the night. And she said, hey, they called me at the nursing home. They told me, sis is modeled. She's about to pass. Can you come get me and take Got up, it was the middle of the night, went and 
picked Grace up, and we went. We sat with her sister, held her hand, prayed with her, and and she passed during the night. And and it was, and and I'd never, I've read this a zillion times, and you know, I never thought anything about it. But that's exactly what it was. It's that color that you see of sickness and death. And this is what this horse is. He is the horse of disease and, and destruction, and it's something that nobody wants to see or experience. And this horseman is about to kill one-fourth of the population. So he's going to come in and he's going to take out what he says is, he said that um, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. It's, it's dark, dark, dark. Um, so as, as we come in here, this is what happens with this horse. So if, if we took that into perspective today, you're looking at upwards of, of close to 2 billion people would be gone with this horseman. This is, this is a big deal. And, and we've, um, you know, <clears throat> we've, we've, uh, we have people in our church who have lived long enough. Maybe we have some folks here who lived through World War II. Dale Coughlin, he's 95. He's the last living World War II veteran in our church. Um, but they lived through where there were millions of people who died. Millions. And, and so they understand and, and have seen, there are people who have seen this and seen the, the, um, the end result of sin. And so forth. So sin has run its course. This is what's happened. When we come through these four horsemen, I hope it picks up from here because this is really depressing. But, but this is what these horsemen are. But, but the thing to remember is this is the result of sin. It's not that God's sitting on the throne going, hey, let's see what this looks like. No, He's saying, you know what? This is what they've chosen and I have let go. And, and this is where sin runs. It runs this course. So if, if you want to look at it in another way, in the New Testament, Romans 1, 18 through um, 32, you see a, uh, another look at it. And here, Paul put it this way. He said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So he begins by saying, look, this, this isn't something that nobody had an opportunity to know. This is something they've chosen. It is a choice. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are not contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, that list doesn't really leave anybody out. It, it covers pretty much anything you can think of or imagine. But, but if we look at it, we can say, you know what? It defines our world. today. It, it pretty much defines our, our culture and, and where we are. And so as we come in and look at it, this is, this is the, the fourth horseman. And when we reject Jesus and we reject the goodness of God, this is what it leads to. This is where it lands. This is what um, comes. We receive the fullness of sin and the destruction that it brings. So sin, as we come in and we look at these first four horses, sin is something that is very, very destructive. Come in, you know, you look in Romans 1, 18-32, they list gossip. I mean, you know, um, there are a lot of people involved in that, right? He says, you know what? It, it, it leads to the four horsemen. It, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. And, and he lists you know, a multitude of sins going on there. Things that today we look at and go, oh, those, that's fine. You know, it's people's choices. Or whatever. You go, no, no. These are sins that lead to death. They're destructive. They violate the very nature of how God's created and made us. And they lead to destruction. So, <clears throat> sin is something that we have to put to death before it destroys us and destroys the people around us. The second thing um, after, after this, that sin produces death and destruction, is that we share in the sufferings of Christ. We share in the sufferings of Christ. we got the first four seals, the four horsemen. Now we're going to move to the fifth seal. And <clears throat> the fifth seal is when he un, un, opens up the fifth seal and, and unrolls the scroll. There what we see is the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. In other words, these are the people who have died for their faith. Um, so we share in the sufferings of Christ. That's, that's where it comes down. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called to be like Christ. We're called to follow Christ. And remember last week we looked at, we said, behold, he said, I saw a lamb as if slain or a lamb that had been slain on, um, there at the throne. So the call to follow Jesus is a call to cling solely to Jesus. That's, that's what we've seen as we've come in and suffering and sacrifice is the path that God chose to defeat Satan and to defeat his minions. That's, that's the path that he has taken and it's how he reaches out into the darkness of our present day and he redeems us from our sin and shame. That's how God reaches out to me. It's how God reaches out to you. He does it through Jesus who died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin and our shame and to offer us His righteousness. So the fifth seal gives us a glimpse under the altar at the souls of those who have been martyred for the Word of God and their witness to the Lamb. So if we come in following Jesus 
is sharing in his sufferings. This is what we're going to see from this seal in 2 Corinthians 1.5. It says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so also through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Not only do we share in his suffering, we share in his comfort and in the hope that we have in him. In 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Peter put it this way, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter was saying, you know what, rejoice that, that this is because it shows that you belong to him, that you're a part of him because we share in the sufferings of Christ. Normally, following Jesus you know, um, is normally means suffering and sacrifice. That's just normal. It's historically been normal. It's normal globally today as, as you look around. Um, we're here in, in where we are, we're in this little bitty unique slice of time and space where, where we are not being persecuted for our faith. Very, very small slice of time. And the danger that we face as we enter this is complacency. The danger that we face it isn't, isn't from people trying to press on us um, persecution and try to make us recant or anything like that. Instead, what, what our real danger is, is complacency and a failure to understand why God has placed us here. And, and that is to, that, that we need to use this time to magnify the Lamb. Um, now, I'm, I'm not saying that people don't suffer. Look, people in our church suffer. Um, they suffer tremendously. Suffer all, I mean, there, there are all kinds of suffering that goes on. What I'm saying is we're not suffering as martyrs for our faith. There's a difference. I've never, in 30 years as a pastor, I've never called a prayer meeting for us to pray for somebody who is in jail because they confessed Jesus. Or had to say, you know what, we need to feed a family because their parents, you know, we need to take in these children because the parents, they, they've been carried off. They've been brutally murdered because they're followers of Jesus. We just don't have that happen in, in the United States. That's very, that would be extremely, extremely rare. But <clears throat> it does happen in the world. And, and we should be praying for the people who are experiencing that. We should be praying for one another as Jesus prayed for us. As, as we come in, if you look in John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed for us. He prayed for the world. He prayed. And in that, in chapter 17, verse 9, Jesus said, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In other words, he's saying, I'm praying for those who belong to me. And he was praying that they would be able to hold on. That they would be set apart by the truth of God. That they would run the race well. His prayer for us is to be set apart by His truth. So as we come in, we, we see that sin produces death and destruction in the first four seals. The next seal, we see that, that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. As you look and you see these, uh, these, the souls of these saints below the altar, it's like the blood that would flow down from the sacrifice. 
below the altar. And then the next thing in, in the uh, sixth seal, in verses 13 through 17, we see God vindicates those who suffer for his kingdom. So um, it's, it's not like God has turned his back and he's not, not involved, but he said, you know what, I will vindicate those who have suffered for my kingdom. He says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit and is taken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being pulled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So this is the judgment of God that is happening. And we says it's, it's, it's this crazy scene that we see with the mountains shaking, the earth shaking, you're seeing the sky become dark and, and so forth. It's a terrible judgment on those who have persecuted God's people. This is judgment upon them. And they're crying out for the mountains to fall on them. They've hidden in the mountains. They've hidden in the caves. And now that they're in there hiding, trying to hide from from, uh, God, they're, they're crying out for death in great anguish. So this is what happens right after the martyrs ask, how long? How long till you punish these people? How long till you do what should be done? In Mark 13, 24 and 25, Jesus said, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. When, when we wonder, when, where is God? Where is God in all this? He's on the throne. And Jesus is, is there with him and, and we have to remember that he has a scroll with his plan for history, with his plan for us, with everything there in his right hand. And he holds it, he holds us, and he has a response to our suffering. He has a response to what's going on. He has a response to sin. And, and the picture that unfolds here is, is something that... You know, we don't like to think about. You know, we typically think, you know what? I'm going to follow. I'm going to be obedient to Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to walk with Jesus, and everything's going to be okay. Unfortunately, if you go back to the fifth seal, it didn't work. There were people who were obedient to Jesus. They followed Jesus. They died for their faith because sin isn't in a container. It just runs rampant. It's, it's like opening up a can of gas or something. It just goes everywhere. You can't stop it. See, my sin, it doesn't just affect me. It affects my wife, my children, it affects you. It affects our church. It affects our witness, unity, mission. 
It's not just a little bitty thing, is it? I can't contain that. And, and it affects people who have nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do with my choices. But my choices affect others. And that's the way sin is. And, and when one person sins, countless others can be affected. Sin of conquest. Think of the people being affected by that. It's innumerable. Horrible. And there are righteous people affected by that. And, and this, is, this is the reality. And, and what God says is, is He vindicates those who suffer for His kingdom. He has not forgotten us. He will not let sin go unpunished. He is in authority. He is in power. And He will do that. Um, and when they do, it's going to be a terrible thing. It says they hid in caves. They hid in the mountains. And, and they cried out, for the earth to fall on them. Hebrews 10.31 puts it this way, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, God will judge sin, and specifically, God will judge those who refuse to repent and turn from their sin. Those who reject Jesus will be punished for their sin. And when we wonder why God allows the wicked to prosper, or how long until He judges sin, this is a reminder that God does judge sin, He will judge sin, and that ultimately those who choose sin over Christ will eternally be separated from Him. And, and this is where the book of Revelation gets very serious. I mean, it's not that it wasn't serious before, but, but it, it comes down to really our choices have consequences. And, and they affect not only ourselves, but they affect others, and, and it comes in. And then the final thing, we jump over into verse 8, and you go, what, what about for uh, chapter 7? We're skipping chapter 7 today. We'll come back and pick it up next week, because it, it has a little interlude in there, and, and we talk about the 144,000 and so forth, and you really want to know what that is, but I don't have time to talk about all that. I mean, it's like I've got a dump truck to, to put into a five-gallon bucket today, and it's really hard get a dump truck worth of material into a five-gallon bucket and then pour that bucket out on Sunday morning and, and, um, and I'm already over time. So <clears throat> let's just move on. We'll pick up the 144,000 next week, but today we're going to go to the final seal, the seventh seal. And in the seventh seal, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, heaven and earth go silent before the Lamb. When the seventh seal is opened, heaven and earth go silent. So we've gotten through all seven seals. In, in Revelation 8, 1-5 through 5 says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel." Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So this is what goes down when, when the seventh seal is open. First of all, there's silence. There's just silence. For about half an hour, 
All of heaven is silent. The great roar of worship around the throne, it goes silent. And, and this, this, um, this seal, these last two seals, are the judgment of those who do not know Christ. They do not know the Lamb. These are the people who are not followers of Jesus. It's a shaking out of those who have true faith and those who are imposters, those who are fake. Um, it's, it's the response leaves heaven and earth speechless. As the prayers of the saints and the smoke of the incense, the fragrant incense of the prayers of God's people go up before Him. So this is what's, what's going on. And, and, and prayer can move heaven and earth. Prayer makes a difference. Prayer is something that, that is precious to God. It is fragrant. It's a fragrant aroma to Him. Um, and as we come in, and as we look at it, we need to understand what prayer does. Um, in, in this, the prayers of the saints were how long? How long? And, and so now, these prayers are being answered. And, and what we have is, um, we have the results. When, when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is what we're asking for. I mean, when we come in and we pray, God, I want you to move here on earth, like you're moving in heaven, we're praying for Him to come and to wind it up, to unroll the scroll. And it's praying for sin to be exposed for the destructive force that it truly is. And that's a, that's a humongous battle. Satan doesn't let that go. And he's going to fight that to the death. In Psalm 76, 8, it says, From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still. For Zechariah 2.13, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. And in other words, this is, this is an awesome, awesome scene that's beyond imagination. Johnson describes it like this in his book on Revelation. He says, In praying for Jesus Christ, the reigning Lamb, to fully establish His kingdom on earth, things start happening. The kingdom began, begins to break in changing things, upsetting the status quo, unmasking idols, fleshing out evil, and meeting resistance. And the followers of the Lamb get caught in the crunch. What he's saying is God's people get caught up when all of this is going on. It is a serious thing. Um, this is huge because it's not going to happen without a battle. You know, um, <clears throat> earlier, earlier this month, I'd, I'd gotten an email from uh, Shannon and Michelle. Shannon and Michelle used to be members of our church uh, a dozen years ago or so. And, and they left to go serve with the International Mission Board. So they went. They were in, uh, <clears throat> over in Russia in the Caucasus. Um, they're um, about 20, somewhere around there. T- 2020, they, they needed to get a visa renewed. Russia didn't renew their visa back in. Um, <clears throat> so they were you know stuck here in the States because of COVID and all this stuff. Well, finally... They were able to, to go back with IMB, but they're, they, you know where they got sent? Ukraine. Right about Christmas time, they went to Ukraine. February 2nd, they evacuated from Ukraine. We evacuated all the personnel out of Ukraine because of what's going down there right now. But, but as you come in there, you look at it and you, look, and you think, you know, well, do we know anybody affected by Yeah, we know people affected by this. I mean, she house sat for it. We knew her when she was a young girl. Um, you know, grew up in Kasilov. 
So this is, this is a different deal that, that goes down, and, and people are affected by this. These are real people. There are many Christian people there who are greatly affected by this. And, and as you come in and you look at it, when, when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, and those who don't bow their knee to Jesus are affected by that, it's a cosmic battle that, that calls for us, the people of God, to pray because the golden bowls that are the prayers of the saints are like a fragrant aroma coming up before God. And that's what happens in this scene. We see the incense and the smoke of the incense and the prayers coming up before the very throne of God. And we are called to pray. And, and that is where we fight our battle on this end. And this battle that we fight with sin is real. It's life and death. It's, it's not, you know, as, as we come in and look at it and look, you know, Look, I'm just like you. I see all these different horses and all this stuff, and I'm just kind of going, you know, this is crazy. And it gets even weirder, you know, like locusts with helmets and, and you know, riding on horses and all kinds of weird stuff. And, and all these metaphors of all this stuff that John sees that trying to describe this cosmic battle that's going on for the hearts and the souls of men, women, boys and girls, for mine and yours and for our kids and, and for the people around us in our community. Because, I mean, ultimately, God's love has already won. He won on the cross. The battle is finished. I mean, the victory is, is, is secure. It is won. It is done. It's over. And we're just mopping it up now. It's just a matter of time before it's all over with. You know, the greatest theological um, <clears throat> illustration of it they give is D-Day to V-Day. They say on D-Day, June 6, 1944, World War II in Europe was won. But victory wasn't finished until 1945. And overran Munich. And, and it was a fierce battle in between then. And, and it, you can watch shows on, on guys that fought from, from June 6th until the end, and, and they didn't give up. And, and that's, that's a picture. That's what it's like here. Even though Jesus won the battle on the cross, Satan's not giving up. He's not giving up on, 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 on trying to destroy me, trying to destroy you, trying to destroy our church, trying to destroy everything that's, that's valid. And, and, and you know, we, we, we don't think like that. We just don't think like that. But this is what the picture drives us to. It drives us to this mentality of, I am going to fight the battle. 